I was really reflecting this last week uh, just about the mileage that we've covered so far on our trip uh, in and uh, through the book of Revelation so far. And since April, we have actually together covered some of the coolest, some of the craziest, and some of the most um, controversial chapters in all of the Bible, if you will. And uh, we have 10 more to go. Uh, I don't know if that's going to take us up to Christmas, but I'd be great if uh, we couldn't even make it by that time. Um, but if the uh, Lord would return, um, or maybe we're going to be able to talk about heaven in the eternal state when we come into Christmas this year. We'll see how things go. But so far, we've uh, on our tour, we've been in this uh, trek so far. We've seen in chapter 1... We've seen the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. Um, No hippie sandal Jesus. Uh, He is the one in heaven who is uh, next to the throne. And then in chapters two and three, we drove past the seven local churches in Asia Minor. Then in chapters four and five, I think really are the grounding chapters of the entire book. There we are in the throne room of heaven and we see the Father sitting on the throne and all that is going on, the doxology, the the glory giving that is going all around in the throne of heaven and and it talks in the beginning of chapter 5 how in his right hand is in a scroll, writing on the inside and the outside, seven seals on the scroll, who will open the scroll and John ends up weeping because no one is worthy to open up the scroll, but then he's told, no, 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 John, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. And in chapter 5, it tells how John then sees the lion who is the lamb, the lamb of God coming, and the lamb comes and he takes the scroll out of the Father's hand because he is worthy. And then we begin seeing in the book of Revelation the one who is worthy opening the seven seals one at a time and, and God's work that comes out of those. And then we see, uh, I think, coming out of the seventh seal then is the, the trumpets, the seven trumpets. We see the first six trumpets and then we see the seventh trumpet. So really, if we want to sum it up, we've seen the throne room of heaven. We've seen seven seals and seven trumpets so far. In between there, there's been some interludes, some pauses. Uh, These pauses give encouragement, but they also give some added information. And really chapters 12 through 14 is kind of that, uh, giving some added information where we're at. And last Sunday, we were in chapter 12, probably one of the most vivid, graphic, uh, um, um, uh, imagery-laden passages in all of Scripture that talks about a woman and a dragon and a child and a war, and we covered that last Sunday. Well, there last Sunday, what we really did was, in essence, on our tour, we left the bus parked by the sea. And I say that because at the end of chapter 12, it says that the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. And so we kind of left the bus parked there, Uh, We saw in the chapter that Satan tried to kill the child, the Messiah, and he lost. Then he tried to kill uh, the woman, uh, the people of Israel, those who birthed the child. And then he goes after uh, the woman's offspring. He lost there as well. He's a loser, loser, loser. Uh, But the thing that's intriguing about it is that we find at the end of chapter 12, even having lost, 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 He's standing on the sea. Why? Because chapter 13 tells about the beast who's going to be coming out of the sea. He doesn't stop, friends. He doesn't stop. There he is planning and never giving up. And I'll just say the thing that has most burdened me out of chapter 12 in that whole time last week is that um, I think we far too often do not really see our enemy for who he is. We really do not understand what's going on. In fact, uh, you, you know I'm a very visual person. Here's how I think we typically picture uh, the, the, the war. Um, kind of like this idea of almost like there's this crazy cartoon character that you know, is out of control, the Tasmanian devil. Um, and then we have in it this idea that kind of it's almost like this emoji dude on our shoulder who um, sitting there trying to tease talk us into doing something naughty, eat the candy, not the vegetables, kind of a thing. 
And seriously, this imagery really leaves us in this place where Satan is a small threat. Um, Satan is just a hindrance, he's a bother, he's an annoyance, kind of like a mosquito buzzing in your ear. Uh, he's almost cartoon character-like. And by the way, the center screen with the angel or whatever on one shoulder and Satan on another shoulder, it's dualism. It's, it's giving Satan too much credit. It's like making God and Satan equal, uh, uh, equal fighters. And that's so not the case as we're going to see today. Um, uh, Satan does not have the size and the power capacity that the Lord does by any means. Uh, kind of this whole view that you see on the screen, Satan becomes a, a nuisance, not an enemy. You see that again, Satan becomes a nuisance, not a real enemy. And also, it's just so moralistic. It's so anthropocentric. It's so man-centered. I mean, who's the important one on the screen? The guy in the middle. Me. You. It's very man-centered thinking, and it loses what is really going on. And by the way, I can say this. I think Satan loves it when we think of him like this. He's thrilled with that because he's already winning when that's going on. Well, this is the wrong picture of him. So, Doug, how should we picture Satan? How should we understand him? Well, for one, he's not like what you see on the screen uh, maybe I could say he's a little bit more like this. A fierce, powerful, wicked, hate-filled enemy that would love nothing more than to decimate you, destroy you, deceive you, discourage you, distract you, or addict you. He's at war, friends, and we're in his war zone. And as we talked last Sunday, here's the important thing. His war is really not with you and me. His war is with the Godhead. And because, well, I don't want to lay too much out yet we'll learn more what's going on. So here's what we're going to do. Um, why the war? Why, what's Satan's deal? Well, that's where we're going to go today. And also, really, what does that then deal look like in real life and re reality? That's actually where we're going to go next Sunday. Um, here's what's going on. At the outset of our tour, I had told you that there would be a few times during our walk through the book of Revelation that I'm going to take some rest stops. Uh, this is one of those. We're just going to kind of take some time and focus on a subject that I think is really, really important, that has importance to the book of Revelation. And um, <laughs> I had this planned for a Sunday for us to have a rest stop. And, and uh, seriously, in light of chapter 12 and just kind of what the Lord is doing in my own heart, I've actually, uh, I'm making this a two-Sunday stop. Um, we're going to, I, believe me, I do not want to give Satan uh, all, a whole bunch of airtime. But uh, we need to understand our enemy. And um, I'll just say, I need to understand our enemy better as well with that. So we're going to lay some foundations out on what's going on. And today we're going to see the war. And we're going to work to know our enemy better. Uh, that's important in fighting a war. By the way, next Sunday, uh, we're, we're going to go and we're going to actually go to Job chapters. and Actually, the book of Job. And we're going to see the war in action I really want to encourage you. It's one of my very favorite chapters, uh, chapters one and two of Job. We're going to go there. Then actually the next two Sundays, just so you know, beginning of the first two Sundays in August, um, Karen and I are going to be uh, gone with the team to Scotland uh, during that time. So Pastor Eric is going to fill in that first Sunday talking on the topic of heaven. And uh, uh, man, that's really fitting, especially after these two Sundays. And then uh, Brock, uh, Pastor Brock, who's the uh, senior pastor planting the harvest on the south side of Indy, with a DJ, they're going to be here uh, that following Sunday and taking that. So we're kind of taking a little bit of an extended uh, tour stop here for a while. But today, uh, who's our enemy and what is his deal? 
So to get answers on that, uh, real answers for real questions, we go to God's Word because God's Word is an answer book, not a question book. I especially say that because of 2 Peter chapter 1 where it says he has given us everything we need for life and godliness and the text tells us that it's right here. By the way, I'll say it this way. He doesn't give us everything we want to know, but he does give us everything that we need to know. To live life the way God has called us to, and by the way, that includes Satan. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do that. So the the bus is parked by the sea, uh, and here's what I kind of want to do. I want to pull out a whiteboard here. So I got a whiteboard on our screen on each side. Uh, Today's a little bit more like a class-like setting. Uh, I'm going to lay out some pieces to you from Scripture. We're going to go and we're going to grab 20 names. We're not going to go to all the passages. We're going to kind of buzz through 20 names that Scripture has for Satan. And then we're going to go to six key passages, okay, uh, in the Bible that talks about Satan. We're going to kind of lay some pieces out a little bit like a class. Today's an info data day, putting some things out. Uh, We'll assemble it more uh, next week. So here's some war data. 20 biblical names and descriptions of Satan. You actually have these in your sermon notes page there at the top listed here. I just want to work down these because of this. Names have meaning. Names have meaning. Descriptors have meaning. Hey, remember when uh, in junior high or high school you had nicknames? Okay, I'll put myself out there. In latter elementary school, I moved to uh, Lake Zurich, Illinois in sixth grade, and I was the new kid. You know, So the new kid, what do they do midway through the year? They get picked on. And so in that day, I was kind of just a regular kid, and I looked a lot like Opie Taylor. Like, I looked a lot like Opie Taylor without the red hair. And uh, in fact, uh, my nickname at that time was Opie Dope. Yeah, feel sorry for me, huh? Now a whole lot of things come together, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but hey, got over it. It's all good, all right? But uh, names mean things. So let me take you to the biggest Opie dope ever. Here we go, 20 biblical names for the true dope. Uh, Satan, here we go. His first name is Satan. You can see that in Job it talks about, but Revelation 12, verse 9, we saw that last Sunday. Satan, another name, the devil, uh, Diabolos. Uh, by the way, the devil is only used in the New Testament with that. Revelation 12, we saw that last Sunday. It talks about both names. It says the, the dragon is Satan, the devil. The text tells us that. Here are some other names. We'll work down here. Angel of light. That's interesting. An angel. An angel of light. That sounds like kind of something good. 2 Corinthians 11 says that he disguises himself as. Fourth name, Beelzebub. The ruler of demons. Luke 11. Here's another one. A roaring lion. 1 Peter 5. Isn't that interesting? Especially when we've been in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, it tells us that Jesus Christ is the lion. The lion who's the lamb, who's also the shepherd. The, the lamb who's the lion, who's also a shepherd. The shepherd who's a lamb, who's also a lion. All of those are descriptors of him. He's a lion. And here it says he's a roaring lion. And, and there's something about a lion that's so cool. It's like, roar, and the majesty. No, no. But in the text, it says that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeing whom he can devour. That's a scary thing. It's one thing to watch, you know, on the, uh, on the Ge- National Geographic channel, lion, roar, just in majesty. It's another thing to watch him prowling around and going for in for the attack. It's actually cover your eyes kind of time with that. Uh, it's, he's called a murderer, John 8. It actually says, from the beginning a murderer. Uh, then the evil one, Matthew 13, he comes and snatches away. Boy, that sounds so much like Re- Revelation 12 when we are talking about there, the woman is giving birth and he's there waiting so that he can take and devour, eat the child in there. He's the evil one. He's the enemy. He's the enemy. Listen to me. He's the enemy. And he's no little dog enemy. Okay? He's the enemy. It also, the scripture calls him in Revelation 12, the accuser. We're going to see more of this next Sunday. 
Uh, the accuser talked about how day and night he stands before the father accusing. Boy, think about that. How interesting is that? Oh, next Sunday. Oh, I want to go there. The next, the adversary. Again, this idea of prowling like a roaring lion out of 1 Peter 5, the adversary. He's the tempter. By the way, Matthew 4, it's in the context of him when Jesus is, on the, uh, uh, is out in the desert fasting and he comes after Jesus. He's tempting Christ. Well, that sounds like an equal duo, an equal battle. Uh, no, we'll learn more about that in a little bit. A little pest. He's the deceiver. Again, Revelation 12. By the way, I'm trying to give you so much of either in Revelation or from the Gospels. To me, there's something very powerful about when Christ calls the, the Satan or the devil things. He gets the war better than we do. Uh, he's the deceiver. It talks about the whole world. He's the oppressor. It's interesting, Acts chapter 10. It's in the context of some people being ill. He loves to oppress people in all kinds of ways. Uh, here in chapter 10, even with illness, it says the sinner, that's interesting, First uh, John 3, but it says from the beginning, the sinner. We're going to see here in a little bit. He's the original bad guy. I'll just say it straight up. He's the one that screwed it up. That's the reality of what's going on. Uh, he's the sinner. He's the father of lies. He originated it. It's his, uh, it's his nature is a liar, John 8. Uh, the great dragon, that's what we saw in Revelation 12. By the way, he's not just any dragon. He was the great dragon. The fiercest of animals in this imagery using to try and help humans understand what the battle is really like. The great dragon. He also, in Revelation 12, we call him the ancient serpent. That takes it all the way back. We're going to go there in a little bit into Genesis 3. He's the one that started the mess. It says he's the ruler of this world. I would call it this. It's an, an allowed rulership. We're going to see more of that next Sunday in the book of Job as well. Um, the angel of the bottomless pit, Revelation 9. The prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. I just say this, look at that name list. Okay, Opie Dope. That kind of was hurtful for a little bit. But this is nothing like this. Not this kind of name list. This is the enemy. You start learning about who he is. Those are 20 names. And let me say this, there are a whole lot more in Scripture. And I've just limited it to 20. Get the picture. This is no emoji, dude. All right, six key biblical passages. Let's lay these out. Everybody turn to Genesis chapter one. I think you know where that is. That's in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter one. Who is Satan and, uh, and what's his deal? You can kind of see on the whiteboard, I've got these passages. I kind of have, if I had a whiteboard and was writing, maybe some of my little notes that I might put up here, uh, you can see there. But Genesis chapter one. Let's just grab six texts that uh, tell us some information about Christ. The first is Genesis 1 and 3. Uh, look at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis. In the beginning, God, uh, Elohim, by the way, it's plural. That has nothing to do with where we're going, but every time I go by that, I think that's so cool. The Bible starts out in the very beginning talking about a Godhead, a plurality, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, who created everything? The Godhead did. Uh, God did. We know in Colossians chapter 1, specifically through the, the primary work of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God created everything, and he created the heavens and the earth, so day one create, day two create, day three create, day four, going down the text create, day five create, day six, we get to verse 27, and it says, so God uh, created man, mankind, in his own image. I would encourage you to underline that, in his own image, that is absolutely critical for today. 
God created you and I in his image. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on exactly what that's talking about, but we have things unlike anything else in creation. Nothing else in creation is said to have been created in God's image. Things are created by God and tell us of God, but this unique terminology is used here and applied only to man, only to woman. And in fact, it's so important, uh, God creating in his image, he doesn't just say it once. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In his own image, it's a big deal. Go to the end of the chapter, all of creation is done. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. How much, of it, how much stuff? Everything. everything that he had made. And behold, it was meode tauv. It was very good. By the way, not just like, you know what? That was pretty good. No, no, it's not that. It's not like, I like that. No, it's this whole idea that after this creation work, God stands back, the Godhead stands back and puts its tag on the whole thing and it just goes, now that is really, really, really good. Okay? Um, Everything is good and behold, it was very good and there was evening, there was morning on the sixth day. Um, Colossians chapter one, verse 16, for by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created, by the way, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. I'm assuming here that what's going on is right at this point in time, at the end of chapter one, there is no sin and there is no Satan. Everything is very good. I mean, everything is very good. Now we move to chapter three of Genesis in the story. Uh, We see in verse one, and now the serpent, by the way, assume you have no idea of this story. Just assume you have no idea of Satan. Just go from what we've read so far. God created everything. He stands back uh, and, and he says, this is all really good. Now we're into chapter three. How long a time is? I have no idea. Here we go, verse one. Now the serpent... That's the first time that character has come up, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman, Eve, said to the serpent, "Uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Way to go, girl. She was exactly right. Uh, This dirt bag comes up and is like, hey, hey, hey. I don't know how, (laughs) you know. And she's like, no, no, that's, that's not what we've been told. No, no, you're wrong. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, no, 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 you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Friends, this is not about Adam and Eve right now. This is about trying to understand our enemy. I think here in this, we see a few things that we learn about here. Uh, He's crafty, he tempts Eve, he lures her, he lies to her. Uh, He's playing her, using her, deceiving her. Oh yeah, and Adam. And he's uh, uh, trying to have them think that, no, 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 God is not fully good. God is holding back on you. Uh, God's not telling you the whole truth. I know the whole gig, and I'm telling you there's more to be had. Why, Why is he after this couple? I mean, seriously, what has this couple done to him? I mean, really, have you thought about that? What has this couple done to this dude? Nothing. Oh, but wait a second. They are created in the image of God. Why didn't he go after a cow? Or a dog? Or a tree? Or a mountain or a river? Why why is he coming after them? 
There's something unique here, and as you talked, if you were here last Sunday, getting the idea, his war is not with the woman, his war is with the Godhead, but he lost the war with the Godhead, so he's going after the woman here. Hey, Satan's a creep. And he manipulates and he totally ruins things. By the way, I think we can agree here, all is not very good anymore. Something happened. I'm not quite sure. When? Exactly how? What? Yet. But something happened between the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 3. Right? Something happened, all is not very good anymore. We're just going to leave it there, keep on moving. Uh, let's go to a couple Old Testament passages, Isaiah 14. If you're using the Bible in the, in the back of the seat there, I think it's like page 577, or you can go to 577 in your Bible, and I don't know, just see where it goes. Um, Isaiah 14, though, is where we're going to uh, sit here for a little bit. I, I do need to make a comment about these next two passages, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Uh, both of these passages have a lot of theological discussion behind them, and I just want for you to know this. Uh, there are some here, the, the verses we're going to go to, there are some who say that, no, these verses don't make reference or don't give allusion to the devil, to Satan, okay? And, and some really, really good people, uh, smarter people than I think that, and some really, really good people, smarter people than I also don't think that, that there is allusion. And let me just tell you three reasons why I think that this, these uh, passages here that we're going to uh, do have reference to Satan here. Number one is because the magnitude of the descriptors that are given here I think are just too big to be applying to a human because uh, in both of these contexts, it is talking to a king, a real king in the time. Isaiah is talking to a king of Babylon, and Ezekiel is talking to about a king of Tyre. And, and, and so in this, there's conversation that it's like, whoa, maybe this is imagery uh, over, over crazy, but I have a hard time believing it's just referring to a human. Secondly, with it, it's not uncommon for Old Testament scripture to be referring to something, but also have meaning beyond itself. Uh, that's not out of line. Uh, Grudem says uh, uh, it would not be uncommon for Hebrew prophetic speech to pass from descriptions of human events to descriptions of heavenly events. Um, uh, it's not unusual. Also, I'm just going to say Luke chapter 10, Jesus himself makes a use of terminology that is so almost exactly the same words of Isaiah 14, 12, referring to Satan. That uh, This is why I think what we're about to read in Isaiah and Ezekiel um, have to do with uh, reference, uh, allusion to Satan as well. I just want for you to know that we're in a bit more of a class kind of a, a time today, and I want for you to know about some of the discussions that are out there and why I'm at where I'm at. So I'm not going into it with grand dogmatism, but uh, I think here we're going to learn some things. Isaiah 14, you there? What page is it? <laughs> okay, just got to have some fun today, all right? Especially on this topic. This has been on me all week, and I need to have some laughs. Isaiah 14, verse 12, let me pick up here. Uh, the context, verse 4, is really, a, it's kind of a taunt. It says, a taunt against the king of Babylon. Uh, but just l listen to verses 12 through 15. Uh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Uh, you said in your heart... I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. If this section does contain not only descriptors of, of a king of Babylon at the time, but also uh, allusion to uh, kind of Satan and, and what's going on in, in, the, in the whole battle background here, uh, if that doesn't, I think it is. Uh, here's a couple things that I think we can grab out of it. Number one, Satan is a fallen mighty angel. He is a fallen mighty angel. I'll comment that in just a second. He's been cast out. He was cast out of heaven, if you will, and he's cast out because of pride, so he's a mighty angel, a fallen mighty angel who is cast out because of pride. 
uh, verses uh, 12, 15, and actually down in verse 19, the beginning of that, it tells that he, he, he was fallen, cut down, brought down, cast out. Verse 12, it says, O day star, son of dawn. Um, here, this term here in the Hebrew refers to a shining one. Um, boy, I could spend some time on this, but I just want for you to know that this is not like a small descriptor. It's not like you thought you were awesome. This is kind of like the descriptor, like, have you ever looked at the sun and it's like so bright it burns your irises out? You can't look at it. It's so big and so awesome and so powerful and so mighty. And, and, and oh, day star, oh, shining one. Uh, listen, this is giving an idea that, that Satan was not just a created angel of God like all the other angels of God here, but we're going to add here in just a little bit, we're, I think we're going to find out that he was like one of the top dog angels, if not the top angel dude, created to, well, we'll find out here in just a second. O day star, son of dawn, shining one, he was a mighty angel. But he was fallen, he was cut down, he was brought down, he was cast out. And the pride thing, verses 13 and 14, it says, uh, you said in your heart, can you just picture it? I will. I will ascend above. And then I will set my throne. And I will sit on. And I will make myself the most high. I mean, it's like, uh, how proud is that? It's like, I want my way. I don't like your way. I want my way. Parents, does that sound familiar? Oh, by the way, I wasn't talking about your kids. Kind of kind of true, kind of not, okay? The loving, loving, loving. Seriously, I need some fun this morning. It's very much, a, here's what I think. It's, it's, it's make it for me. Isaiah 14, a fallen mighty angel cast out because of pride. Let's go to Ezekiel 28, probably about 150 pages to the right. Uh, 715 in, in the Bible, back of the seats. Context here, Ezekiel is talking about the king of Tyre. Um, verse 11, we'll pick up. Says uh, verse eleven. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse twelve is saying, "Son of man, rise, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God: You were the signet of perfection. I think the New International Version says the model of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty." And here's part of the reasons on some of this why, why uh, a number of theologians think this is, has a dual reference, also giving us insight into the reality of Satan. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. All these stones. <laughs> I don't know how to really say it well. Emerald, <laughs> got that one. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, got that? On the day that you were created, uh, they were prepared. Uh, you were an anointed guardian, what? Cherub. Come in on that in just a second. Again, major reason why I think this not only has a reference to the king of Tyre, but is talking beyond this. Where do you see in Scripture uh, a man, a human being referred to like this. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst. And you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Verse 12, you're a signet of perfection. You're a model of perfection. By the way, you're not perfection. 
but, but you are a, a representative of perfection. Full of wisdom, perfect beauty, verse 13, in Eden, the garden of God. Uh, on that day you were created by creation, also referenced down in verse 15. Verse 14, you were an, an anointed guardian cherub, also stated in verse 16, uh, placed in that position by God. Uh, Burkhoff makes a comment on him, on cherubs. He says, uh, more than other creatures, they were destined to reveal the power, the majesty, and the glory of God and to guard the Lord's holiness in the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, and, and in the descent of the Lord to the earth. Do, do, you, do you get this? A cherub's job was to guard the greatness and the grandness and the holiness of the Lord. And one who was in that position obviously was given the opportunity to make a choice. Why did God let him make a choice? We'll get to that in just a second. No, you want him to have a choice because God is not about creating robots. Okay, for his glory. Listen, creating robots just a, a forced uh, a worship of like, what's the deal with that? Now, that's arrogant. And yet here, within this, is this whole idea, there, there was at some point in time a choice that was made on who they were to serve here. And the one in this highest of positions is like, kind of, if you will, up on the process, seeing all the glory that's giving to the Lord. And he's like, man, I don't, I want this. I want to have a little bit of this action. Dude, you weren't created for that. No, but that's what I want. Verse 14, and then verse 15. You're blameless in your ways, we see. Man, he was created really awesome. Unrighteousness was found in you, though. Until, you notice that? Until unrighteousness, verse 15. Verse 16, you were filled with violence in your midst. You sinned, so I cast you out as a profane thing. Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty, thinking he's hot. And part of the problem was he was. He was beautiful. But when you know you're beautiful and yeah, it goes, doesn't go great places. Uh, you corrupted your wisdom, verse 17, for the sake of, here's the whole issue. Listen, friends, this whole issue is a doxology issue. Satan wanted the, the splendor. He didn't want to give the splendor to God. Satan wanted the splendor. God said, no, that's not the way this is. By the way, but why, oh, let's keep going, I'm sorry got to move on time. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. A couple New Testament verses. We'll, we'll fill in gaps next week. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. Page 1018. And it says this. We're just putting information out. We're laying pieces out. That's all today is about. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, Angels who sinned, but cast them out into Tartarus, which is hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's just one verse, tells a number of things. Angels, they sinned, they were cast out, chains of gloomy darkness until judgment. Well, if they're chains of gloomy darkness and and if they're in there, where, where was chapter 12, where was Satan thrown to? Earth. Uh, let me just put it this way. Chained to earth until judgment. So does that mean if we go up in a spaceship, we'll get away? Cheapers. <laughs> Here we go, Jude 6. <laughs> Jude 6. There's a couple pages to the right. It's one chapter of Jude. It's verse 6. Jude 6, it says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, that's a little bit more of a descriptor, angels who did not want to stay in the position of authority, they were given authority, man, what a sweet seat they had, but they didn't want to stay in that seat, they wanted a different seat, 
but they left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Take a couple more pages to Revelation chapter 12 and we'll, we'll be finishing here. Again, I'm just laying out some pieces. You can see them on the board here. Revelation chapter 12. We covered this last Sunday in a lot more detail. You can get online and listen to that. I would encourage you to just because I think this is so important. Friends, if we're not going to get what's going on here and laying out who Satan is, the rest of the book of Revelation will so frustrate you. And it will not make sense. If you do not see the war and you do not understand the enemy, the rest of the book becomes a massive confusion on why. Okay? That's what I'm trying to do here. Let me just, I actually want to read chapter 12. But read it, look at it from this standpoint. What are some tidbits that we can get out of this chapter that tell us a bit about Satan and who he is? And then we'll wrap it up. Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, her head on a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out with birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. A woman, uh, that was the people of Israel. Uh, verse 3, And another sign, not a great sign, just a sign. It appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and the heads uh, seven diadems. And by the way, here in the later verses, it tells us this dragon clearly is Satan, the devil. And he swept, uh, I think verse 4 is referring to past, because not only is this future, but there's past information here. Verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. I think this is referring to a war that took place back uh, before Genesis chapter 3. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth uh, to a child uh, so that when she gave birth that he might devour it. Uh, this is Satan wanting to take out the Messiah. As we talked last Sunday, Satan's war is with God first and foremost. We are collateral damage. We are collateral damage with Satan's war with God. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And that's the entire incarnation right there. Christ was born, died, rose again, ascended back, and the dragon was lost, left in a loss. Verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she was placed prepared for God. Verse 13, jump over. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly, would fly from the serpent into the wilderness. So the, the dragon lost with the child, so the dragon goes after the woman. Uh, the Israel, I, I think this is, the, the nation of Israel. So he goes after them because uh, uh, they um, are, are birthed the child. And uh, then verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, uh, with like a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed that river. Dragon was poured from his mouth. In other words, the dragon tried to go after the woman and lost again, big loser. And then the dragon became furious and the woman went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, what's the deal? We talked about last Sunday, he went after, he went after Christ and couldn't take him out. So he goes after God's people, couldn't take them out. So what does he do now? He goes after God's people. And this has future application, but it also has a past and present implication. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's go verses 7 through 12. This is how we covered it last Sunday. We'll finish here. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that serpent, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying with all of this, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. We're gonna see this next Sunday. And they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. And this is what I told you to circle. 
for they did not love their lives. They loved the lamb more than they loved their own lives. They loved the lamb more than they loved their own lives. Oh, that we might be like that. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. End of the chapter, he's there on the sea, planning and figuring out. Let me ask the uh, question, elephant in the room question. Why? Why did God even allow this? If this is really true, why did God allow it? Let me give you two uh, quick references or thoughts on this. Number one. I would just encourage you to picture yourself asking the question before the Lord. Um, the Psalms tell of people who struggle with things that the Lord's done, is doing. And the Lord listens. But I also just want for us to imagine this. God, why? Why did you let this happen? Why have you allowed Satan just to be alive and to do what Satan has done for generations and generations, God? Kind of why? I think the answer to that whole question is going to be answered without even asking the question. Once we behold the glory and the majesty of the Lord. By the way, I also just want to carefully say this. That almost gets close to a tone of what Satan's issue was. I don't like this. I'm not liking your plan. I'm not liking the way you're doing it. You know what? I think it should be about me. Actually, I think you're kind of stupid. And so I just say, be very careful. Ask the question. Consider it through. But picture the answer before the Godhead. And I think they got it. Even though I don't fully understand it. And I'll say it that way. I don't. But I would also consider some people that are smarter than me. Let's, let's put on the screen here. Let me read two paragraphs from John Piper. He says this, I conclude, therefore, that God permitted Satan's fall, not because he was helpless to stop it, but because he had a purpose for it. Since God is never taken off guard, his permissions are always purposeful. If he chooses to permit something, he does so for a reason, an infinitely wise reason. How the sin arises in Satan's heart, we do not know. God has not told us. What we do know is that God is sovereign over Satan, and we'll see that next Sunday. And therefore, Satan, Satan's will does not move without God's permission. And therefore, every move of Satan is part of God's overall purpose and plan. And this is true in such a way that God never sins God is infinitely holy and God is infinitely mighty. Satan is evil and Satan is under the all-governing wisdom of God. Why didn't he cast Satan into the lake of fire the day after he rebelled, Piper asked. Why let him rampage through humanity for centuries? The ultimate answer is that all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Son of God, Jesus Christ will be more highly honored in the end because he defeats Satan through long-suffering, patience, humility, servanthood, suffering, and death rather than through raw power. And the more highly honored the Son is, the greater the joy of those who love him. Satan in all his pain serves in the end to magnify the power and the wisdom and the love and the grace and the mercy and the patience and the wrath of Jesus Christ. But Doug, I don't like it. I wouldn't have done it that way. I'm, I'm with you. But I need to finish with this verse, Isaiah 55. The Lord says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Are you okay with that? Yep. Friends, how do you see the enemy? Seriously. 
Is it like this? I mean, is it this uh, cartoon-like nuance or uh, this small little battle, this annoying little nuisance pest, not a huge deal? I'll just say the center screen does not match with the whiteboard, okay? Or do we see the war and the enemy more like this? Or it's a big deal. Having this kind of image of Satan changes how you live life. But know this. In Christ, that punk has lost, is losing, and will lose. But know this. That punk is fighting till the very end. And we are in the war zone. So remember when we uh, went through, those of you who've been here for a while, remember when we went through our study on the book of Joshua? Um, my favorite picture is this. Let's look like this in the war. Warriors and warrioresses buckled up, going into battle, not understanding every detail, but understanding the whole. And we fight together because we need each other. Oh, I need you. And we need each other. Because until we see Christ face to face or until he returns, let's look more like that. So that when he comes, I'd love this place filled with people Looking like that, if Christ shows up any day. And so, Lord, we leave it there. Um, data on the table. Um, just kind of going from literally beginning to end in your word, trying to grasp some things and understand our enemy. And, um, Lord, he's a punk, he's a powerful punk. He's playing and he's using and he's deceiving and he's luring and he's proud and he's profane. He's a deceiver, he's an accuser. He knows his time is short. So he's all out. He has nothing to lose. He's already lost. And God, he hates you. And we want to be a people that adore you. And that means if we're going to be people created in the image of God who adore you and call Christ our Redeemer and our Savior, that means we better understand that there's one who doesn't like us at all because we bear the name of Jesus Christ. And so we're in a war. And I just pray we would fight it not on our own, not in our strength, but only by the power of you. Lord, help us understand that, what that looks like more. We'll get there next Sunday. Till this time, may we look expectantly for your return and may we conquer as you have. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.